But this morning, starting in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. One of the interesting things I believe about Paul is that Paul probably wrote the way he spoke. And so this was just one huge thought. And actually, in the original language, it continues on. There's no period at the end of that verse. So it's this huge, huge thought. And it actually starts with where he wants to go. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. And then he gets sidetracked for about 12 verses. And then he later on in the chapter, he comes back to, for this reason, and then he finishes what he was going to talk about. But in this first beginning section here, he's starting to talk about prayer, he's starting to talk about the, the love that God gives us, but he gets sidetracked and he says in verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Last night I went through and we talked about the, the different dispensations. I'm not going to go through all of that this morning with you, but just to give you a, a brief overview, dispensationalism is a method of interpreting the history that divides God's work and purposes towards mankind into different periods of time. So basically the way that we interact with God and that God has interacted with us since the beginning of time, you can break up this history, both past, present, and also what's gonna happen in the future, you can break it up into different time periods. Now there's a lot of discussion over it, Bible scholars debate, some say it's as few as three different time periods, some say as many as 37, but most people would agree on seven or eight of them. And so I'm just going to give them to you. I'm not going to explain them. If you have an interest in that, you can send us an email. You can leave us a note in the church office, and we can get you all the information that you need on them. But just for our purposes this morning, I'm going to list them off for you. I'm going to give you eight of them, and then we can talk about the dispensation of grace, which is the one that Paul is referring to here. The first one is the dispensation of innocence, then of conscience, then of government. The fourth one is promise. The fifth one is law. The sixth one, like I said, we're currently in, and that is grace. And then after grace, it's a very extended one. And then it comes a short one, which is tribulation. And then following the dispensation of tribulation, the final one will be the dispensation of millennial reign, which is when Jesus comes back and he reigns here on the earth for a thousand years. And so as you go through these different dispensations, all of these different time periods, it's really a way for God to show us that there is a need for his son, that there is no one that could do everything rightly apart from Jesus Christ. And so you go through the, the varying dispensations, and you, I'll just highlight the first one for you so you get an understanding. In the dispensation of innocence, you know, people use the excuse nowadays, well, it's because of my parents, or it's because of my, because of society, or it's because of the hand that I've been dealt, or it's because of all these different things, and because the world is so messed up, that's why I do the terrible things that I do. But in the dispensation of innocence, at the very beginning of time, when God created Adam and Eve, and he had them in the Garden of Eden, they were completely perfect and without blame. They were innocent. They fell. They created sin, in effect. 
So the, the idea that we could have done this if our situation had been better is completely faulty. And so as you go through each one of these dispensations, you start to see how God is at work and trying to reconcile man to himself. And for those of us that are children of God this morning, we have been reconciled. And this reconciliation is bringing us into a right relationship with Jesus. That's the dispensation of grace. Because again, as Paul writes, it's not of works. It's by grace through faith. And so we, we don't deserve it, but we've been given this. And so Paul writes here, he says in verse 2, If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He says the mystery of Christ. And it's the mystery of the gospel, but also the mystery of the body of Christ. And for us, our understanding of mystery is much, much different than what the understanding of the original word was. In English, we have so many words that we've, we've picked and chosen. We've pulled from all these different languages, and then we've tweaked it. We've massaged the definitions to fit our language, to fit our culture. And so in English, a mystery is something that's, that's hidden. It's something that's secret. It's dark. It's obscure, maybe even puzzling. You know, we talk about relationships, and you want to keep the mystery to, to keep the fire alive and all of the things like that that you hear. And, and that mystery is something that's unknown. Well, it's similar in Greek, but the Greek word mysterion is also different because it's still a secret, but it's a secret that is no longer hidden. It's no longer closely guarded, but it's open. It's freely given. It's if you ask, it will be shown to you. To, to be a little bit more simple about it, mysterion is a truth that before that point in time had been hidden from human knowledge or understanding, but it's now been understood by man because God allowed it, because God revealed it. There's a revelation. You know, we use that word. Some people don't really understand what that means. Revelation is just a big word that says that now you got it. Now we've given it to you. We let you understand it. We've revealed it to you. And so this revelation of God has been given to Paul, and it's been given to him for all, including the Gentiles. And this was a big difference. Before Jesus came to live and to die and to be resurrected and, and to do the reconciliation to bring us all into this one body, the Gentiles had a very, very different status than the Jews. Because before that time had come, the Jew and the Gentile were completely opposed. You know, as you go through and you, you read through some of the, the history about what it was like back in the days before Jesus came, the temple, when they would go to worship, there were places that only the priests could go. And there was a place that only the high priest could go. But then outside of that, there was the court of the women because women were not allowed to go as far as the Jewish men. And then outside, further outside, way, way outside, was the court of the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles that wanted to worship God, that came to the temple to do that, they were literally afar off. That's why Paul uses that phrase so many times and that, that picture that we who once were far off have now been reconciled to Christ. We've now been brought into this, this inheritance, into this family, because it is such a big difference between what it was then before Jesus and what it is for us now. Now, after Jesus has come and he's completed that mission that he he came to fulfill, the Jew and the Gentile are brought together into one family, and we Gentiles, we now receive the promises of God. 
But before Jesus left the earth physically, he had promised to send the Holy Spirit who would help us and them to teach us all things and empower us to share him with the world. And so now Jesus had come and he had given them this mystery that had now been revealed in himself. And then he sends them out. He challenges them. He tells them to go out and to make disciples into Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And they hadn't done that yet. They had gotten stuck still in their own backyard. And, and Paul, Paul was the one that had been given this mystery, this revelation, this understanding, and he had been sent specifically to the Gentiles. Now, when Jesus came, the Holy Spirit had been given. The mystery was no longer hidden to Jews or Gentiles. And even on top of that, as Paul is stating here, this fellowship that we have in Jesus is actually being used to teach the angels, to teach the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Because as you go back through and you, you look, we'll pick it up in verse 4, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. Again, it was a mystery. As it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So we have been brought into this body. We've been brought into this promise through Jesus Christ, through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So he says, to the intent, so all of this has been done. This mystery has been revealed. The Holy Spirit has been promised and now received. And now they have been given the commission, the mission to go out and to share Jesus, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he came to do, what he's already accomplished, and what he's going to return to do. So they've been given this mission to go out and to share this, and now it's freely given. But now, even beyond that, verse 10, he says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, that means just the, the abundance, the huge wisdom of God, might be made known by the church, by us. Not by a physical church, but by those who are called by the name of Jesus Christ. Those who truly have a relationship with Jesus, by us, that we would make known the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I mean, that's amazing to stop and think about, that the church, the body of Christ, that we are being used to teach the angels, to instruct the angels. I mean, we talk about all these different things. We talk about guardian angels. We talk about the, the archangels. We talk about the cherubim and the seraphim. And you look, and, and they are, rightfully so, very, very powerful, powerful beings. And yet, they're still finite. They're still created just like we are except that there's a big difference between us and them, is that we have been granted this opportunity to go beyond anything that they've experienced, to be able to have access to the Father, to be able to be a part of his family. The angels can't understand why God would do what he does towards us. It makes no sense to them, and really, in reality, it doesn't make any sense to us if we stop and think about it, and that's what grace is. It's something that goes beyond human understanding, human knowledge. It's just something that God gave to us. The angels can't believe that we've been granted the Father through Jesus. 
We have access to him at all times, which is completely undeserved, and it's much different than the relationship that God has with the angelic hosts. Just one section to give us a glimpse of that is in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. And it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Now we don't know exactly what the protocol is for the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, but we do know that it is very different than ours, and we do know that they have to receive an invitation. You know, this is not something that they can just barge through the door and say, God, I'm here and I need time with you. And yet we have that kind of access. We have unparalleled access through Jesus and because of Jesus, which makes no sense to them. But in God's infinite wisdom and grace, we have this privilege and it's a privilege that is so often underused in our lives. You know, we, we have access to the Father. You know, there was a song that we sang this morning, we are the sons and daughters. That is a, a position of privilege. Not that we would be stuck up about it, not that we would be conceited and arrogant because we've done something amazing, but to understand that we've been blessed, that that is a, a huge, huge privilege. To kind of put it in a, in a little bit of a, an earthly perspective, a physical perspective. You know, my office door is almost always open. You know, when I'm meeting with people, most of the time it's open. But there are occasions where there are closed door meetings. You know, it's a, a sensitive topic or it's something that, that doesn't need to be overheard by anybody else. And so I have a closed door meeting. My three-year-old daughter doesn't understand the concept of a closed door meeting. Okay? My three-year-old daughter, Violet, she sees the door closed. She knows that I'm there. She can see the light creeping out from the bottom of the door, and she doesn't get it. She wants to know where her dad is. And so she will knock on the door, and then she will bang on the door, and then she will say, Daddy, it's me. Daddy, it's me, until we open the door. And there are, she's the only one that does that, but she has that kind of access to me, to her father. She knows that if she bangs on the door, that if she says, it's me, it's me, that we're going to open the door for her. And there are times when it's not too delicate a situation that, that she actually stays for the rest of the meeting. She'll hang out in my office, sitting on my lap, while we're discussing whatever it is that needs to be discussed. And that's going to change soon because she's already getting to the place where she remembers word-for-word -word details about different things. But, but she has that access. And she's not afraid to use it. She literally is bold about using that privilege, about using that access. And I think that that is the perfect picture for us to understand the kind of, of privilege and access that we have to our Father. There is never a time that He's too busy for us. There's never anything that is too small for Him to, to speak to us about. He wants us to come into His presence at every moment of every day. He doesn't want us to leave His side. He wants us to be with Him at all times, and He wants to make His home in us. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a, in a bit, but, but He desires for us to have that fellowship with Him, to have that relationship with Him. And the only time that it doesn't get used is when we fail to do it, when we fail to go to Him. 
But the next part here, we, we get to see Paul's heart. That Paul's heart was for all the lost, both Jew and Gentile, but God had given him a specific calling to be a minister to the Gentiles, who, as I already shared with you, were largely left out of the loop by the early church, by the disciples at the very, very beginning. Jesus had ascended, and as he's ascending into heaven, he tells them, you guys need to go out. You need to take this. You need to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Everywhere that you can go, everywhere that there is a living, breathing person, you need to be sharing the gospel. You need to be sharing the truth of who I am, of what I have come to do, what I've accomplished. And you need to get out and you need to do that. But they hadn't really left. You know, they had received the Holy Spirit, but they were still stuck in Jerusalem. And so Paul had been given this commission, and Paul took it very, very seriously. And Paul, as he goes through here, he mentions grace over and over and over again. In, in verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. Then you jump down to verse 7, he says, Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me who am, least, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul fully understood grace. He understood grace because he recognized who he was. Not who he had been, but still who he was. He recognized how, how privileged, how blessed he was to be able to do this ministry for the Lord. And as Paul was amazed more and more by God's grace to him, he wanted to share more and more of the unsearchable riches of God's grace with those who hadn't heard of it yet, especially the Gentiles. And when he talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ, it doesn't mean that you can't find out about God. It means that you can spend your entire life, and we should, desiring to know more about God and that we will never fully understand him until we get to heaven. You know, that, that's just, God is so immense, so amazing, so beyond our, our full comprehension and understanding that there's always something new. You know, it's one of the reasons that, that God has placed it in our heart as a leadership to start building up home fellowships and Bible studies, opportunities for us to get together as a body of Christ to do more, to search the unsearchable riches of Christ, to get to have a greater understanding of, of who God is and what he wants to do in us and what he wants to do through us, to search the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know, Spurgeon would write, I am bold to tell you that my master's riches of grace are so unsearchable that he delights to forgive and forget enormous sin. You know, that God is just so amazing that he delights. One of the things that God enjoys is to forgive and to forget enormous sin. The bigger the sin, the more glory to his grace. And if you are overhead and ears in debt, he is rich enough to discharge your liabilities. If you are at the very gates of hell, He's able to pluck you from the jaws of destruction. And this is not just to save us so that we can skate into the kingdom of God. This is to save us, to transform us, to renew us, to conform us to the image of him, that we would be more like him, not completely perfected. You know, that's one of the reasons that, that there are so many things that are talked about in both a past and a present tense. Even in some of the songs that we sing, you know, this morning we sang, this is amazing grace. And as you, you sing through that one portion of the song, worthy is the lamb who was slain, it starts with a past tense. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. And I don't know if you guys have ever noticed or paid attention, but the first one is the past tense. 
And every time we sing it after that, it's the present tense. Worthy is the king who conquers the grave. Because day by day, we are being dragged down by sin, right? We are tempted. And sin, the wages of sin is what? It's death. So he is continually conquering the grave in our lives. Not because he has to be re-crucified again, but because we're messed up. Because we still fall. But his grace continues. His grace is extended so that even though it's already been accomplished, it's taking place in our lives in the present tense. You know, and we're so blessed. We're so privileged. And God wants to do so much in us. And salvation, like that would be enough, right? If that was all we got, if we were just able to barely skate into the kingdom of God, that would be enough. But God's grace extends even beyond that. He's done so much more in us. Paul knew about this grace. He knew he wasn't perfect, but beyond that, he knew that he had also completely missed Jesus' life, mission, and work. So completely, in fact, that he was one of the leading attackers of the faith. So when he talks about God's grace, he's speaking from a truly humbled place of experience. He recognizes who he is. In Acts chapter 9, verses 10 through 14, we get the beginning of, of the section where Saul is going to be visited by a man named Ananias. It says in verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. And then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So just to, to set the tone here, Ananias is a follower of Jesus. And Ananias is so filled with the Spirit and so close in his relationship with God that he is receiving a vision. Okay, This is God speaking to him directly, something that he can hear, something that he can see with his eyes. There is a tremendous closeness between God and this man Ananias. And yet, what is Ananias' first response when God tells him, this is where I need you to go? He says, God, I'm not sure if you understand how terrible this man Saul is. Okay, like, that is really, really saying something about how bad Saul was at this point in time. Because he is literally talking to God. God is speaking to him, and his response is not, okay, I'll go. It's, God, Saul is a messed up dude. Saul is so messed up, and he is wrecking the church right now, and I don't think you fully grasp what's taking place here on the earth. That's how bad Saul was. Ananias was so in tune with God, and yet he was so afraid of this man Saul. But in verse 15, it says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's, there's so much there. Like we, could, we could just camp out here for the rest of the time that we have together. But, but just some of the, the simple things from this passage. 
And God says, go for this is a chosen vessel of mine. A chosen vessel of mine. And Paul got that because he, he then later would use that very phrase, that very understanding as he's writing later on in the New Testament. That we have been chosen vessels. Vessels to be used for God's glory. Not because we are so amazing, but because in these earthen vessels, God can pour himself and then pour out into the lives of others. And so he's been a chosen vessel to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And then in verse 16, something very, very interesting. That God says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. What a powerful, powerful testament to the life of Paul that is. That even at the very, very beginning, I don't believe that God showed him everything that he was going to have to go through. But God very clearly says, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. That means going into it, going into becoming a missionary, going into being an ambassador for Christ. He has just barely experienced Jesus. He's just barely gotten saved. And God starts out this relationship by sharing with him how many things he's going to have to go through for this mission that has been placed in his life. And Paul didn't back down. You know, so much so that later on he goes through and he starts listing all the things that he's already been through. And he says, but none of these things move me. None of these things move me. That was the power of God working in Paul. That wasn't Paul himself. That wasn't because God had chosen such a strong man, such a strong individual. That was because this was an individual that had completely given himself over to the working of the Holy Spirit in his life. He was still imperfect. He still made mistakes. He still failed. He still faltered. But he desired for God to be worked in his life. And so in verse 18, it says, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, sure, Paul had a head start. At this time, he was still Saul of Tarsus. His name hadn't been changed. But he had a head start, in a sense, because he was a very educated man. He was an academic. He had gone to what we would equate to be seminary for so many years, and he was at the top of his class. He had studied under one of the best teachers around, Gamaliel. And so he goes through all of this. And so, yes, he had a great understanding of the Old Testament. But still, within days, within days of receiving Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, of days of beginning this relationship, he's filled with the Spirit, and he immediately, in verse 20, he immediately goes out and preaches to Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. We are so prone to excuses for why we can't be used, for why we can't go out and do whatever it is that God has given to us to do. You know, I was so blessed by, by the people that were, were desiring to go to Houston last week. For those that went, but also for those who were unable to go, but that had really, really tried. You know, couldn't get off of work or you know, couldn't get babysitters, whatever it was. Because there was a genuine, heartfelt desire to go and to take Jesus, to live out Jesus just by being missional. To go do something. To take a week out of their time and to go and to do something for the Lord just to bless others, just out of the love that God has given to them. 
You know, and we, we have all these excuses where, oh, well, I can't do that, and I'm not a good speaker, I'm not, not this, not that. There's something for all of us to do. There is always something for each one of us to do. And even beyond that, just because you're not a good speaker doesn't mean God can't speak through you. Paul was not a great speaker. You know, you go through and you read some of the sections, Paul was, he was very honest about that. He was not the best speaker. But he said that I preached Christ simply. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was the simplicity of the gospel because that's what it is. And he was faithful to preach that with sincerity. And I would suggest to you that sincerity, genuineness, authenticity, all these different words that we could use for it, that that is so much more important than passion or, or being able to, to speak well. Because if you really feel it, if you experience it, if you believe it, if you have what I call a walking, living, breathing relationship with Jesus Christ, then people are going to be able to hear you speak about it because they can see it taking place in your lives. And I, I also believe that many of us who are older in the faith, not always more mature, but many of us who are older in the faith often hinder the move of the Holy Spirit in the name of protecting whatever it is, the body or, or a specific church or a specific movement. You know, and, and I think that that was one of the things that, that God began to speak to me very, very clearly as I was studying for me personally. You know, that sometimes I can hinder the move of the Holy Spirit in a person's life because I look at someone that, that maybe doesn't have the, the experience or maybe doesn't have the, the education or maybe doesn't speak as well as somebody else or doesn't sing as well as somebody else or play as well as somebody else. And God has continually throughout my life, throughout my time in ministry, both being serving under people and also being in charge of different ministries, God has continually reminded me that it's Him at work and it's not us. You know, I, I am blessed to, to do what I do. I am so privileged and so thankful. I, I shared the last time that I spoke that, that there have been times in my life that I have actually been dreadfully afraid that I would lose the ability to sing the way that I sing because I never was taught, I never trained, I never learned how to do it. It was just a gift that God had given to me. And, and I'm blessed to be able to do that. But even at that, you know, there, there are recordings out there from when I was first leading worship as a college student in the high school ministry. I was awful. I mean, just awful, absolutely awful. I don't know how they let me continue. I was so bad. But somebody saw something in me. Somebody saw, hopefully, Jesus working in me and that there was a plan, there was a purpose. There's a man that has since gone on to be with the Lord. His name is Louis Delgado. Louis blessed me with my first guitar. You know, he just kind of out of the blue one day, he just said, hey, you know, I see that you, you just love to sing and you love, love worship and here's, here's my old guitar, man. I fixed it up for you. And, and that began, you know, my my ministry journey in worship. And, and this guy was not, you know, God's gift to music or anything. He was, he was competent. He was good. But it wasn't like he, he was amazing. But that is the one man that above all the other influences musically that I've had and in the, the realm of worship, music to worship God, that is the single greatest influence from an earthly perspective. And he wasn't even in my life for very long. But it was just the simple encouragement. He could have hindered the spirit the way that I have tried to do so many times and said, well, maybe this isn't the ministry for you. 
Maybe this isn't the job for you. Maybe this isn't the calling that God has placed on you. And I try so hard not to be that person. But sometimes I still am. But I'm blessed by the people that that come and they express a desire to be involved in whatever ministry it is. And this isn't just about a ministry here in Calvary Chapel of El Paso or any other organized church or organized ministry. If God has placed it in your heart to to share the gospel and you know that God has placed it in your heart to lead a Bible study, that doesn't mean that you have to come and and get an uh, approved, if you will, Bible study through Calvary Chapel of El Paso or any other church. You can start a Bible study in your own home. You can start a Bible study with your coworkers. You can start a Bible study with your friends after you go and do whatever else. You know, some of the greatest moves of the Spirit have taken, out, taken place outside of organized church. Not all of them, yes. We, we hope and we pray as a leadership here that many of the moves are going to take place inside this fellowship. But they don't all have to take place inside this fellowship. So if God has placed something in your heart to do, you need to get up and do it. If God's Holy Spirit is speaking to you and desiring to speak through you, then you need to go out and you need to be used, regardless of your physical or spiritual age, regardless of your experience level, regardless of your skill level, regardless of how long or how short you've been in the faith. All of us have something to give to the kingdom of God. All of us have something to give because God has given it to us to then turn around and give it to the kingdom of God. The fields are ripe for harvest and there honestly can never be enough harvesters when it comes to bringing people into the family of God. And Paul got this, he understood it. And he understood who he had been called by because going all the way back to verse one of Ephesians chapter three, he starts a section and he says, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. You know, he started this section by acknowledging that he was a prisoner. He was chained up in a Roman prison. He, he was there. Like, there was no two ways about it. He was a prisoner. And he started this section very, very different than the way many of us, if not all of us, would have started it. You know, if I was in Paul's shoes, there is a very good chance that I would have been looking at it very, very differently. I would have been asking for money from everyone that I knew to try to get my way out. I would have been asking for strings to be pulled from anybody that was in a position of power or or influence or authority. I would even be asking for people to pray for my release. And none of those things is wrong in and of themselves. But if God has already spoken to us that we're there for a purpose and that this is what he wants and where he wants us to be, then we need to be faithful to that. The plea that Paul gave to them was not to be discouraged by his imprisonment. And he even called himself the prisoner not of Rome, but the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Because he knew that he was still on the clock, if you will, as a missionary, as an ambassador of Christ. You know, Paul's first response, I believe, was prayer. And he already had a glimpse, we saw it in Acts, of some of the things that he was going to go through. And so Paul was at work. Paul was about his father's business. You know, a typical prison guard shift in that day and time was six hours. So that means that Paul had no less than four different people to witness to every day. Four different people. And that's the way he saw it. He looked beyond just the physical entrapments and he saw the spiritual mission that he had been given. So much so that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 21 through 23, we get a glimpse of something that I have skipped over so many times and never fully gotten. 
He says in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 4, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul was working from inside a Roman prison, and he had been effective because he says, All the saints greet you in verse 22, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. This was not a, a little home fellowship. This was not somebody's family. He is actually talking about all of the different prison guards and the soldiers that had been witnessed to, not just by him, but by the others that had been imprisoned with him, but all of the different Roman soldiers that had come into the family of God. I mean, that is tremendous that he would look at his situation so much differently. And I truly believe that it was because of prayer. You know, and and I, I would relate that to us. How do we respond to the challenging times in our lives? Is our first response to a challenge to try to find a way out on our own? Which is fine because we've been given a sound mind. It's a blessing from God. We should use that. Are, are we trying to, to get with friends and acquaintances to try to, to help us through the situation? Again, not a bad thing. Are we asking God for deliverance from the situation? Also, completely within our right and, and even responsibility. But our first response, our most important response, needs to be praying for God's will to be accomplished in our lives. And that is not always a pretty thing. It is difficult sometimes. It is challenging all the time. Challenging all the time, but extremely difficult sometimes. We go through different things. Every single one of you in here, if we just went around the room, everybody's going through something all the time. Every single day of our lives, we are challenged in one way or another. It might be a temptation to sin. It might be something that, that God has delivered us out of that we still keep trying to go back to. It might be a, a physical ailment. It might be a, a mental anxiety. It might be a job. It might be a coworker. It might be a boss. It might be a family member who's just constantly ripping on you. We are all going through something. But God is so faithful in the midst of all of that. And many times, he's allowing us to go through that challenging time so that others can see what the life of a Christian looks like when the rubber meets the road. So that the people around us can see what a difference Jesus makes in the life of a believer. Because, you know, when you talk about being a, an athlete, Everybody can make the amazing shot. You know, everybody makes the, you know, you see people try the, the half-court shot or the three-quarter court shot. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, I was six, seven, eight years old, and we would throw the ball as far as we could. And one in, well, I don't know, 100,000 maybe, you know, you make it. Everybody can make the great shot. But it's about all the rest of the shots. It's all the, the mistakes. It's all the misses, all the bad things. How do you get through those times? How do you respond to the adversity? That's what makes the great athletes great and everyone else just average or good. And that same kind of concept is at work in our lives as believers. We are so much more effective at communicating Jesus to someone else about sharing the words when people can see how we've gone through the challenges and how it's looked different in our lives compared to somebody else. When we go through a challenge very similar to a non-believer and they can still see hope, they can still see joy, 
they can still see peace, they can still see love in our lives, what a difference that can make and how powerful that can be in our testimony as we share then the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where Paul was. That's what Paul understood. He had been shown that he was going to go through all these things. But he also knew that as he was being imprisoned, as he was going through these things, that what better time for somebody to see Jesus lived out in his life. And he did an amazing job. You know, he, he didn't tally it up for us. We don't know how many people that, there were that he witnessed to, how many got saved, whether directly or indirectly. He may not have even known in his lifetime. But he knew that he had to be faithful to the mission and the calling that God had placed on his life. We have opportunities all the time to share Jesus with those around us and it's almost always a combination of the words and the actions. It's never going to be enough to just share with them the words and it's never going to be enough to just be missional because there are nice people in the world. In fact, there are nice people in the world that really feel like they have no need for a savior because they're so nice, because they do so many good things, and how could God possibly send them to hell? So there are nice things, there are good things, there are people that are doing good things in the name of themselves, in the world. So it's never enough just to tell them, it's never enough just to do something. It has to be both, and it has to start with prayer. It all starts with prayer. And that's the thought that Paul was getting to when he started chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, in 14 now, he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he started in verse 1. He says, For this reason I, Paul, and he goes through, and then he gets sidetracked from verses 2 all the way through 13. And then in 14, now that he's finished that whole thought, now he comes back to his original plan and he says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about praying. He's talking about spending time in the presence of the Father. And he's talking about a very, very different type of prayer than was common in his time. Because the common way that they would pray in those days was that they would have the prayer shawl, they would have the, the cap on their head, and they would stand with their arms upraised and their head lifted up and they would pray. They would pray often towards Jerusalem, but they would pray that way. And so this is very, very different. Paul's saying that I bow my knees, not even just one, but both. He's on his knees in a position of humility. He's bowing himself to the Father. And we talk about it all the time, that Jesus has to be more than just our Savior. He has to be our Lord. We have to bow in deference to him, which basically means that we give up the right to our own will, our own plans, our own thoughts, our own desires, that we would be filled with those of God. That we would be filled with those of God. And so that's what he starts here. He, he bows his knees, a, a symbolic bowing of his heart, and he gives us the understanding that his life has been completely surrendered to God's leading. And, and it's easy for us to allow our times of prayer sometimes to become more about us and less about Him. You know, it's the complete opposite of what it's supposed to be. It becomes more about us and less about God. 
God, I, I could really use this, or if you could help me out with this, or, you know, I, I'm running late, if you could give me all the green lights, you know, I, I didn't study for that test, you know, I, I know I'm not qualified for this promotion, you know, I, I know that I just spent money that I shouldn't have spent on this, but can you just make it stretch to the end of the month? You know, all these different things, and, and again, none of those things in and of themselves is a problem. God already knows, so definitely speak to him about it. But that all of that would be surrounded and overwhelmed by the understanding that God, whatever your will is, your will be done and not my own. And Jesus was a perfect example of that. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and he, he's talking to his father and he says, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. And what he's saying is, if there's any other way that we can accomplish salvation and bringing Jews and Gentiles into this body, into your family, into our family, if there's any other way that we can do this apart from me going through all of this punishment and being sent to the cross, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed for deliverance from that. Like, stop and think about that. That's not a bad prayer. Obviously, if Jesus did it, it's okay. But he closes it with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, when you're going through a difficult time, when a family member is going through a difficult time, it's okay to pray for healing. It's a good thing. And you should ask as many Christians as you know to pray for the same thing. But also to be willing to pray for whatever God's will is. And if that means that God's going to take them home, then that means that God's going to take them home. But that we would be willing to surrender our lives to him, to surrender our wills, to surrender our hopes, our dreams, our everything to him. And so that's what Paul had done. He had bowed his knee to the Father. And then he continues on in verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. And so he says that all of these things have taken place. It's amazing. God's grace is awesome. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And I have been blessed with the privilege to share that with you and to share that with the Gentiles. And I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And don't worry about me because I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. But all of these things, and then for this reason... For all of the things that I've already shared, primarily in chapter 2 of Ephesians, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am praying for these things. And that what, he, what he's praying for, we see in verse 16. I am praying that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his power in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of God which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying these six things for the church in Ephesus. And these are things that God desires for all of us to have in our lives that we would be able to, to really have these things exemplified in our lives. You know, the first one, it's not enough for us to just have the head knowledge, to be strengthened in that, or to, to have the, the physical ability to go out and to do something. 
We have to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have to be strengthened in the inner man. The things that no one else sees, the things that no one else knows except God. We have to be strengthened in that. And how does that happen? That happens by us spending time with God. By us taking advantage of this heavenly access that we have to our Heavenly Father. The second thing there is that Paul encourages us to have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith. And the understanding here is not about just that the Father and the Son and the Spirit come and they make their home in us. It's not just that. But the word, actually, what it really means is that they're comfortable in us. That they would be at home in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. You know, think about your life, as I have to think about mine every time that, that I'm challenged with these things by the Lord. You know, in all the different places that you read through the Word of God, this is one of those thoughts that keeps coming back. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. God desires for us to be challenged daily to see if our lives really are reflecting Him. That, that He wants us to recognize when there are areas in our lives that he's not comfortable with. I mean, that, that's really what it comes down to. And, and it, it's simple and yet so difficult. But is Jesus really at home in our lives? The things that we do, the places that we go, the people that we hang out with, the things that we say, the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, all of those things. You know, is Jesus comfortable with our lives? Is he comfortable living in us. And then the next thing there, he says that the love of God, the love of God, to know it, to experience it, that we would allow the love of God, which the Spirit pours directly into our hearts from Romans, be a hallmark of our lives. That we would allow our every thought, our deed, our actions to be motivated by the love of God and to be so filled with God's love that it seeps into every relationship that we have. But in order to be able to have that outworking of love, to really be rooted and grounded in this love, we have to understand the greatness of this love. And the only way that we can really understand it is to experience it. If you are a child of God, you have experienced this love. You know, you may not be fully experiencing all the love that God is giving to you because there's something going on in, in your life. Same thing for me. There are times that, that I have drifted away, but I can never be separated from the love of God. And what a privilege that is. What an awesome promise that is. And, and we need to really experience it intimately to know this love of God ourselves before we can share it. Because as I've already spoken, that people need to be able to see Jesus lived in us. Even in the hard times. Not just in the good times. But even in the hard times. And if they can see the love of God in us, working in us, working through us, then they can hear it from us. They can experience it from us. And finally, the last thing is to be filled with the fullness of God. There is always something deeper and bigger with God. There is always something better that God wants to share with you. Not in terms of physical things, but there's always a greater understanding. He always wants us to see him more clearly, to know him more intimately than the day before, than the moment before. 
You know, and that's, that's my heart's desire every time I get behind this pulpit. And I, I believe it's the same for every pastor and every person that has ever been allowed to speak in this pulpit. He said, our desire is that during this time that we have together, that we are being changed, that we are drawing closer to God, that God has revealed something. Not that Sean has revealed something, not that Charlie has revealed something, or Tom, or Sam, or James, or, or whoever else. But that God has revealed something to each one of us. And hopefully, multiple things. Because there's so much that God has to give us. The day is coming when we will be completely emptied of these fleshly bodies. And completely filled with the goodness of God for all of eternity. But God doesn't want us to have to wait to experience these things. He wants to share with us as much as we are willing to take here on the earth. But it involves us being emptied out. It involves that, that flipping of the, the story to get away from our times with God, our times of prayer being more about us and less about Him and to reverse that trend and get it back to more about Him and less about us. That He can start digging away at the things that He wants removed from us. That He would be able to fill it with things of Him. You know, God never leaves us empty. You know, when God takes something away, it's not so that we can just have a void there. It's so that he can more fully fill our lives. When he takes something away, it is so that he can fill us with more of him. And when we are faithful to recognize that, the joy that we receive from that grace is tremendous. You know, it's not a bummer. It's not something that we have to, man, it, it just really stinks that, that I missed out on that or that God removed that from my life. Or I remember back in the day, in our BC days when we used to do this, it's not so that we can look back and reminisce and say, man, those were the good old days. It's so that we can look back and say, man, I had no idea what I was missing before I knew Jesus. Man, I had no idea what I was missing before God took this particular thing away, before God filled me with this instead. And that's to be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he closes out the chapter here in verses 20 and 21. He says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And we'll, we'll close here just looking at that from the back to the front. He says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. That God would receive all the glory from everything that Paul has talked about, everything that takes place in our lives, all the things that God is doing, let God have the glory in that. There is one surefire way, there's multiple, but there is one that I can guarantee you that will remove you quickly from being used, and that is to take the glory for yourself. Allow God to receive the glory when he does something miraculous in and through your life. And then going back to verse 20, he says, To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to this power that works in us, this power of God, the Holy Spirit that's at work in us, is able to do exceedingly abundantly over our wildest imagination, above anything that we could possibly dream of doing for God, that's the power that works in us. That it can do even beyond all of that if we are only willing. And so three things in closing. May the power of God be at work in each of us at all times. I think that's pretty simple. That the power of God would be at work in us all the time. The second thing is, may the focus and the glory be on God and not ourselves. The focus, if the focus, our focus is on God, 
then God is going to get the glory. If our focus is on us, we're going to get the glory. We have to keep our focus on God so that the glory can be his. And the last thing, may we be found faithful to spend time in prayer, taking advantage of that privileged access to our Heavenly Father so that the power, the glory, the love of God would fill us fully and overflow into the lives of others. Amen.